0: Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. If any one of you in this room is not sure whether or not today you're a born-again follower, Christian, pay attention Because I think we're in times today that are somewhat similar to Noah's flood, if you know what I mean. Maybe not to that extent, but regardless, you definitely want to be on the right side of history, okay? The Lord Jesus meant it when he told us in his Olivet Discourse about the future, Matthew 24, he said the end times, the end of the age would be like the times of Noah, People would be eating, drinking, getting married, do what they do in their routine lives every day. And then that would happen just before judgment comes. The Son of Man would come. So we may be in somewhat similar times. The point is you don't know when exactly the Lord's going to return. Jesus did say in that message, they were unaware until the flood came, talking about the people of that time, and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Mm. So we better pay attention to this story. This is a real historic event. We better learn from it. We better praise the Lord again for the fact that if you're in Christ, He's covered you in a covenant here, and that should comfort, really, believers in hope. According to the Bible, the Lord says, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born?" Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Those are words of the Lord toward us, his people. I love that. So God's covenants, including the one we're looking at today, all right, remind us that God is our Father. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He doesn't forget his own, his children. He's given us, in fact, this word and this section, we're, we're concluding our series back to the beginning from Genesis 1 to 11 Today, as we've seen all these firsts, we saw first life, first sin, first judgment, first nations, and now we're concluding, of course, with first covenant and the first law. Now, what exactly is a covenant? You've heard the word many times before if you've been in the faith for any length of time. But again, any Christian or serious student of scripture needs to know what this is. You need to know what a covenant is. A covenant is an agreement, a little bit in some ways like a contract which is between parties in a relationship. And we're pretty familiar with that. You sign contracts all the time today. It can contain a promise sometimes, and it has to be fulfilled based on some conditions or some commitments. There might be obligations to them. Uh, Sometimes it's a unilateral covenant. Only one person, one party makes the promise to another and fulfills all the conditions, all the obligations. Sometimes a covenant is by two, bilateral, more than one person in a partnership, okay? Today, as Christians, marriage might be thought of as a covenant. I think that's a good way to really think about it. I think we should look more of it, more upon it that way, because of that great commitment that takes place. Even membership to a local church could be thought of as a covenant. We do in a way with what we call commitment to fellowship, a CTF here at this church. Now, what there is is there is some variation among scholars and theologians as to exactly how many covenants we have in the Bible and what to call them. God, I think, initiated at least five major covenants that are all mentioned and they're first prophesied in the Old Testament. You've got the Abrahamic covenant, right? God called the father of faith. Abraham to be the father of many nations, beginning with the Jews, the promised land. That would be part of it. People being justified by faith. Okay. that's one. you have the Mosaic covenant named after who That's a tough one, I know. And the Mosaic covenant is law, the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, et cetera., et etc, and the first five books of the Bible, the Torah or the Pentateuch, and then we have the Davidic covenant named after, of course, King right. And David, of course, is from where the bloodline will go to Jesus as the coming Messiah and risen again, and again coming Messiah, and that there will be a historic kingdom, a Davidic-type kingdom on earth in the future to come. And then, of course, we have, thank God, the new covenant of grace, and all the promises that come with that, which is a time that the Old Testament prophets prophets talked about that the Holy Spirit would put the law of God in our hearts. It no longer was just in a book or on tablets of stone, okay? Okay? That began with with Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and the Spirit being poured out and birthing the church, all right? We're discussing the first covenant today, really. That is the Noahic covenant, named after Noah, and the covenant God made with Noah is really for all of us, and it followed just a little event that occurred on the earth several thousand years ago that you find in Genesis 6 to 8, called the Flood. That was a worldwide catastrophic event. As you know, Pastor George shared with you here earlier in the series, that was a judgment of God on the earth, on mankind for worldwide sin. And it wasn't just any kind of judgment, right? If you go back a page or two in your Bible to Genesis chapter 6, verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, all created life, that means, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, people, don't think you're so smart and sophisticated today that we've moved completely beyond the time of Noah, societally or culturally, that time of violence. You know what kind of world we live in, right? I just read this story last week of a 13 year old boy who stabbed his older brother. He told, his, he told the police he'd rather be in jail than spend a few days in a car with his sibling. I mean, listen to this. The teenager complained to his 15-year-old brother who had been teasing him on a car trip from Tennessee to Florida. And then he slashed him three times with a pocket knife. And the younger boy was arrested. He was charged with aggravated battery with a deadly weapon, county sheriff's office said teenager said he had had enough of his brother and did not even regret attacking him. Is that normal for people to do? For teenage kids in a car on a family trip and you get a little ticked at your brother and you slash him with a knife? That's not good. That's wacky. We're not a well people as a people. So then after Noah gave his instructions on how to build the ark, in which to survive this judgment that's coming. God mentioned that a covenant is coming that's going to cover all creation. I'm back in chapter 6, verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh. You shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. You know that story. That's a literal physical salvation, folks. Let's rescue. This covenant is unilateral. God is doing all the lifting. Okay? He's obliged to keep it. It's a promise of his. And he's made a promise to repopulate the earth and redeem it for generations, right? First thing he does, he sets up the first form of government that's ever going to be made. It's a model of all mankind going forward in which to enforce justice. And then he's going to confirm this covenant of grace in mankind. But my first point is this. Look at what he establishes before he really lays out, flushes out the covenant. He talks about capital punishment and the sanctity of life. Capital punishment and the sanctity of life in verses 5 through 7. The passage of the covenant actually really begins at the end of chapter 8 when the Lord again establishes this promise. Noah and the family, they come off the ark, Okay. The families are ready to repopulate the earth. In chapter 8, verse 20, we see the first sacrifice. Noah builds an altar to the Lord, takes every clean animal, some every clean birds. He offers burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse or dishonor the ground because of man for the intention. Listen to this. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the, now, how long does this go on, this covenant? Verse 22 of chapter 8. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. That basically covers all the seasons. That covers day and night. So it's going to go on as long as we're on the planet, looks like. And then, of course, you know what they're to do. Chapter 9, verse 7. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth, multiply in it. So what God is doing, he's promising he's never going to judge the entire earth, destroy it as he once did with the flood, for the rest of human history. So it's a covenant of blessing that you're going to see here. But we come to the heart of chapter 9. Prior to the full explanation of that, the Lord gave all of mankind a twofold purpose. Reproduce and rule. Reproduce and and rule. Have dominion or authority over creation, just as he gave to Adam and Eve, right? Chapter 9, verse 1. He told them, be fruitful and multiply. Verse 2, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Now, let me just clarify that. It's not that animals, rocks, plants, birds, and things are in terror of human beings per se. But it does mean that Hebrew word fear has with it the idea of reverence. It means that creation respects, was made to create, to to respect mankind, and is to be subdued in submission to mankind. So God, again, summary, is saying, guys, family, repopulate the world, have lots of children. That's a beautiful thing. Reproduce and rule because creation is for you. It's for you, for my image bearers to enjoy and to responsibly take care of it. All right. Then here it is. We get universal pre-law. Law. Pre-law, meaning this is pre-mosaic law and covenant but we get a law, what many feel is the first law ever given universally to mankind. And it's echoed in the Decalogue, which is what? Do not murder or kill. If you do, you're gonna pay the ultimate price of justice. Look at your text in verse five. And for your lifeblood, which means your life, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Basically, that means this is a requirement for an exchange of a life for a life. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This is my first point. Capital punishment is based, actually, on the sanctity of life. This covenant shows life is sacred and that man is not to destroy man who is made in the image of God. So to preserve the sanctity of life, God has put laws and governments in place. It's his first institution after marriage and family, government. Governments were made by God, instituted to make and enforce laws. And the first one protects the sanctity and the preciousness of life. In fact, we find in Exodus 21, if you even owned an animal that killed a human being, that animal would be put to death. In fact, we have laws like that today, don't we? Even still today in this culture, you've read the stories, pit bull dog attacks a child, kills the child, the dog is euthanized like that. That is about the sanctity of life of that child that lost its life in that theoretical but there's a distinction here. The word life, there in the second sentence of the verse in the Hebrew, is a word nephesh, we get for soul, the soul. And that's making a distinction from animal to human being, to persons. We have souls, animals do not. That makes our life as image bearers even more precious and unique to God. We're image bearers of God, animals are not. So, the reckoning and the requirement of one life for another goes actually to the dignity of mankind. It's a universal moral principle. And by the way, it extends from creation, this law, through the Mosaic law all the way to today. Leviticus twenty-four seventeen says, Whoever takes a human life shall be surely put to death. Lord Jesus expected that to be normative. The night he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going to be taken away to the councils and the cross and that conspiracy. Peter's got a little Machaira sword. He's ready to whack everybody and take all their ears off. And the Lord in Matthew 26, 52 says, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the... What was that? He says, this is what the Roman government is instituted to do going to take your life, if you take anybody else's here, in vengeance. Look at verse 6 of the text. Whoever sheds the blood of man, or takes the blood of man, is what that means, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So that just reaffirms verse 5. First law of mankind, the institution of government, as it were, begins with the law of capital punishment, or the death penalty. As we call it, the penalty was given by God to reflect his justice, his sense of justice for his creation. God is just, therefore, he ordained that human government be just, enact laws of justice. Justice is what? It's simple it's giving a person what he or she is due, getting what you deserve. The old saying is not so old you do the crime, you do the time. That's justice. Regardless, even natural philosophers, non-Christians, they considered the death penalty from the beginning to be a primary function of the state. And this sentence, by the way, so you know, it wasn't meant to be carried out willy-nilly. You had to have at least two witnesses in order to carry out a capital sentence. And the motive in the heart of man is taken into account in committing murder, by the way. If you go to the Decalogue just after that in Exodus chapter 21, you get the difference almost in so many words between first-degree murder, second-degree murder, manslaughter. Exodus 21, 12 says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. Sounds like Cain and Abel. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning or treachery, that's what we call Premeditation. You shall take him from my altar that he may die. See how it works. God cut Cain a lot of slack, by the way, when Cain killed Abel in the first murder of human history. And an interesting scripture here's another one about how violence pollutes a land and God's going to deal with that Numbers 35, 33, Listen to this. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land and no atonement. Forgiveness can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You see? It's consistent. Government and law, this may sound ironic to you, government and law protects life by executing justice for life. The Apostle Peter said the same thing about law enforcement. He said that governments are sent by him, God, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, right? Now, governments can extend mercy on earth to criminals following God's example. Yes, they're under no obligation to do so according to God. In fact, they're cautioned by the Lord not to do so as a general principle when it comes to the crime of murder, all right? In fact, God takes sin so seriously as you may know, there were other acts under Mosaic law that were capital offenses. But again, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant was for that time. You might know that most of the U.S., 30 states still authorize the death penalty. There are people, I will tell you, many of them pacifists, uh, professing Christians, the Quakers, Catholics, they oppose the death penalty. In fact, just a year ago at this time, the Catholic Church revised its catechism, that's its teaching, doctrine, to say that, quote, the death penalty is inadmissible because it is an attack on the inviolability and dignity of the person, end quote. So they actually make the argument that to oppose the death penalty is to be pro-life, and that's compatible with their pro-life stance on abortion. They think pro-life, they actually think pro-capital punishment Christians are hypocrites when it comes to taking a pro-life position, because they'll say, look, you guys want to save unborn babies, but you're okay with executing or taking the life of an already born person. The part they're leaving out there is that it's criminal. But like on so many issues, I'm going to respectfully disagree with Rome on this. More importantly, as does the Bible in our text, as well as in the New Testament. Many pro-life Christians do support the death penalty because the sanctity of life demands it, demands that justice be meted out to the person that deliberately takes the innocent life of another. You see, the dignity of man, according to God, requires capital punishment. Human life is so unique and sacred to God that anyone who takes the life of an image bearer forfeits the life of his own, forfeits his own life, the right to it. It's just holding people morally accountable to what they do. God's word says death deserves death. Murder deserves death. And nothing less is sufficient due to the seriousness, the gravity of this act of murder. And if this is the law for one simple murder, How much more is it for multiple or mass murders, mass murders, and serial killers? How much more are they responsible for bloodshed? So the idea is society is to be kept in order when each person receives what is due to him. Right? One commentator said this quote, crime disturbs this just order for the criminal takes from people their lives, peace, liberty, and worldly goods in order to give himself undeserved benefits. Deserved punishment protects society morally by restoring this just order, making the wrongdoer pay a price equivalent to the harm he has done, end quote. That's well said. You know what, that's well said, that's biblical. That's Genesis 9, 5, and 6. It's about justice, folks, not revenge. Now, we can argue all day about the methods, DNA testing, etc., but let's face it, capital punishment doesn't even work today as God intended it, because you have actually very few states that carry it out. Florida is one of the few that does today. And due to the, all the court appeals and the delays, right now it's estimated in this country you've got about 3,000 people on death row nationwide, and some of them have been there for well over 20 years. In fact, they may never see their sentence carried out. They will die of natural causes in jail before they're ever executed. Now, that said, can an evangelical disagree with this a little bit? Yes, to some extent. I mean, can a believer want to grant mercy in their heart to a convicted murderer? I would say, yeah. That God would even commend that, right? That's one individual loving an enemy, Extending mercy to another. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount gives pats for that. That's an individual thing. I mean, and the Old Testament as well. What does the Lord require of you? Micah 6 asks. Do justice and to love kindness or mercy. It's a both and. Not an either or. How is it both and, either or for you? As a child of God, someone commits a murder of one of your loved ones, God forbid you can freely and conscience extend personal mercy, compassion, and forgiveness to that criminal. You can. You can pray for their salvation. That's a good thing. Listen, didn't the Lord Jesus show us this with the thief on the cross? He was right next to him being executed. The Lord didn't say, by the way, I, I'm against anti, I'm anti-capital punishment. Would you take the guy down? The Lord wasn't concerned with that. He just said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Justice had to be meted out on a human level. But personal forgiveness and mercy is compatible with that. There's no contradiction there. There's no conflict there, all right? You and I are not judge and jury. God has clearly ordained that government is the agency, the means by which justice is handed out in a nation or a state in order to protect the state. And that begins with capital punishment, which shows both sides of God. He is just and he is merciful. Both. That's capital punishment. That's the sanctity of life God reestablished when he reset the world with Noah. He instituted a system of government and laws to put his holiness and his justice on display. And it's meant to protect us, folks. Then, here, secondly, he makes with Noah, here it is, the first covenant with a symbol of life. Covenant and the symbol of life that goes from verses 8 to 17. Follow with me from verse 8 to 10. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I like the emphasis there, I, that pronoun the Lord has there. Behold, I, in fact, the New American Standard adds, I myself establish or confirm my covenant with you. The Lord's reminding Noah of the—in the in the first mention of this covenant, he even said this prior to the flood, chapter 6, this is not a two-way street. This is my covenant. I'm doing this. Only me, God is saying. I'm keeping this covenant. I'm making it. It's unilateral, promise made by God. The world will never be destroyed again as it was because of sin. And listen, God gave mercy to this world, knowing in full knowledge we were going to keep on sinning. That's what's amazing to me. Earth, mankind, despite this reprieve, sins Again and again and again, his chosen nation Israel, again, again, cycles of sin, century after century after century, rebellion against him. So this is a sign, a covenant sign of blessing and grace to the world. Not because we significantly improve, not because there's going to be a better class of human beings that we're going to come from the loins of Noah. Okay, that's not it. It's not because we're good. It's because God is good. It's pure grace. Free grace covenant. Okay, grace is greater than our sin. Even when we have laws in place to regulate us, we still do it time and again. Verse 11 I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off. That means killed or destroyed in the Hebrew by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood. To destroy the earth. You get this? This is how you know this is a universal flood, because Louisiana has been flooded with hurricanes, and parts of Florida, and all sorts of places around the world. There can be floods. We're talking about a worldwide catastrophic, cataclysmic flood. And again, the Noahic covenant is not restricted to Noah. It began with him and his family, but what I just told you is the reason why we know it extends to all of us. In fact, you know, I mentioned five biblical covenants. Only one of them has been nullified or completed, and that is the Mosaic covenant in Christ and the church, right? The new covenant replaces the old. It's a better covenant. All the rest of them are perpetual. They keep on, they keep on, including the Noahic covenant for the rest of mankind's history. Then the Lord's going to come in final judgment. And there will be another extreme makeover of the world. You know that to be true. And 2 Peter 3 tells us it's going to be in fire this time instead of water. Fire. And this word covenant, it carries the idea also of a peace treaty in the Hebrew. And that's what God has done for us with this covenant, right? God's patient with us. Okay, Right now, the earth is under a peace treaty with God. Right now. Back from verse 12 to the end of the passage, you get the idea, the sign, the symbol that ties it all together. Look at with me verses 12 and 13. God said, this is the sign or the symbol of the covenant that I'll make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. I have set, note, my bow, doesn't say rainbow, my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. How many of you have a translation that says rainbow? Okay. Actually, the word bow is a better translation, and you're going to see why. It's not a typo. Bow not only refers to the rainbow in the sky after a literal rainfall, all right, but it refers to the ancient weapon of warfare like an armor, like an archer with a bow and arrow. And what it is is a symbol that God, signing his peace treaty with the world, is putting down his weapon of warfare and judgment in this covenant. You say, wow, I thought the rainbow meant something else, man. Isn't it a line? Isn't it just a line curved of seven different colors in the sky? It is, by the way. And it's very pretty, true. I love to look at them. And it's and it's not quite just about having that picture of your child, the baby in the room with Noah's Ark. I remember we had that in David's room. And, it was a, you know, a little scriptural phrase underneath it, and it was really cute, but it doesn't really signify anything that's really cute. Now, scientists will tell you the rainbow is nothing more than sun just refracting, refracting really light through raindrops that come through the clouds, and that's true. It's actually sunlight that interacts with raindrops that produce these wavelengths of visible light. And then you have the Greeks. They saw it another way. They thought it was a sign for their mythical gods and that the mythical gods were communicating something special to them. That's the same kind of idea, by the way, those people that see like the gospel and special messages in the constellations and the stars, like horoscopes. I hope none of you in this room are looking at horoscopes and actually looking for wisdom there because the stars have absolutely nothing to tell you about your life at all, in any way, shape, or form. That is a pagan invention, okay? Fortune cookies, don't get me started there on that one. (laughs) Then, more modern times, on the rainbow, you have homosexual activists, and they've tried to co-opt the rainbow as a symbol of the LGBTQ movement, and it has absolutely nothing to do with that whatsoever. What the rainbow is simply is a sign, is a guarantee of God's promise or covenant to all mankind that his bow, his, his judgment, his weapon of judgment has been put away, hung in place over the clouds, suggesting that the battle, the major storm of creation is over for now. For now meaning All of human history. And you know, God's done this sort of thing before with symbols and covenants, right? You got the memorial of the covenants, like the stones when Joshua and the Jews crossed over the Jordan, circumcision for Jews. This is just another symbol of the covenant. And the bow even symbolizes the glory of God also, by the way, like a brilliant light. You read about that in Ezekiel 1, uses the same word in Revelation 4. You've maybe seen pictures before, artists rendering on the throne of God in heaven in Revelation where there's a rainbow behind it. So it has that idea of glory, okay? So this this rainbow really is a God-glorifying, praiseworthy reminder of God's mercy, and grace. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. He says, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Does God forget stuff? Does he have a bad memory? I mean, because it says, I will remember. That's not what really the phrase means in the Hebrew, it's really a call to mind like a memorial. It's like a way of just seeing something and thinking about what it means. And what it means is that rainbow, the Lord, is the promise keeper, covenant maker, and keeper of the universe. That's what it means. And then from verses 15 to 17, he keeps repeating the phrase, all flesh, all flesh. It's for everybody, all creation. All entirety of peoples, nations, tongues, tribes are covered by this covenant. It's universal. Here's where this really hits home, guys. Our God is about redemption, salvation for his glory. We know the New Testament tells us, John Mark mentioned this in reading the scripture, the Lord is patient with sinners. He has delayed the final judgment to come so that his kingdom would grow with worshipers and spirit and truth. He's being patient with sinners, people like you and me. Just as he was patient at that time, by the way. How long did it take Noah to build the ark? 120 years. Not just because he didn't have a lot of labor to help. That wasn't the reason why. Peter describes him in the New Testament as a righteous preacher. Noah was preaching grace and redemption and judgment to come every day as he was putting that gopher wood together for that ark. That's why the Lord says through Peter, he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And you know what I find fascinating, if not really prophetic here? God's perfect righteousness and his holiness once judged a world filled with sin, with a planet-wide flood, yet he provided salvation, redemption, redemption, For man made a future for him by taking an ark of gopher wood and rescued that family from the judgment, which was symbolized by a rainbow as a second chance for the world. And then 2,000 years ago, by his divine grace and mercy, he did it again. God upheld his justice again by judging his sin and crucifying his son on a wooden cross and then symbolizing in full redemption that empty grave on that first Easter resurrection Sunday to give man another chance. I love that. There is a parallelism of sorts between the Noadic covenant and the new covenant of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 16 and 17. What a beautiful picture. The end of the passage, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The rainbow comes after the rain, not before. Had to have the rain first. Weeping, what does the Bible say? Weeping indoors for a night, joy comes in the morning. God's given us, his image bearers, another chance to taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen? To escape his just wrath. Get on an ark, the cross of Christ, so you can experience real life, real joy, and peace now and to come. So as I close, what do we learn from this Noadic covenant, this point of human history, this first covenant? First law, first covenant? At least three things, if you're taking notes. If you're taking notes, this is a real good time to do that. Number one, the heart of man, as Jeremiah would say later, is deceitful and desperately wicked. This is like Christianity 101. You have to start here with this truth. In our unredeemed state, Everyone in this room is capable of great evil. Is that a surprise to anybody? Number two, which follows logically, God hates sin. Eventually, he will run out of patience with us, and he's going to deal with sin, including judgment, sometimes temporarily, and some permanently for sure. So if you're in this room without Christ, if you're not sure, You need to cry out to him today and beg him to save you while there's time. Because what did Jesus say? Like, it'll be in the times of Noah when he comes back. Everyone's just doing their thing. And when he comes back in judgment, it's too late. Chances are done, virtually. Number three, and finally, obviously, our God is abundant in mercy and grace. Despite our sinful nature, he is committed to remembering and fulfilling his covenant promises to bless his children that are faithful and obedient to him and to preserve this world until he returns for final judgment, and then he's going to restore the world to the paradise it was always meant to be all along. So my aim for you in this message, folks, is that you would just better understand God's mercy and grace, praise him for it, thank him for it, for his holiness, his intent for dealing with sin, and appreciate his mercy for sinners like you and me. You saw that in the covenant. And it's pictured not only in the ark and the rainbow, but in the cross of Jesus Christ, right? He's perfectly good. God is because he's both things. God is perfectly just, and God is perfectly merciful. Remember his mercy towards you. When you're sensing God's wrath on you, when you're seeing God's wrath in the world, remember his mercy towards you in this entire world. As we close with Habakkuk three two, that prophet, in the midst of great judgment on Israel, prayed... Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Let's pray. Father, we do remember and continue to need to remember your mercy and your grace in the midst of wrath. We thank you that you are a complete, comprehensive, perfect God, Lord, Savior, and Redeemer. You will exact your wrath and justice as you should on sin, at the same time having provided by your mercy and grace an escape, a gospel, salvation, redemption that can come through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, by your grace alone, for your glory alone. And so I pray, Lord, for anyone in this room that has not yet come to Christ, that has not yet turned to you, making a commitment in their heart, a change of mind and heart to leave sin and selfishness behind, to trust in Christ alone as the forgiveness of their sins and the payment and the penalty of their sins. If they've not done that, may they do that now today. Lord, may they be on their way to getting on that final arc of salvation, the cross of Christ, also made with wood. Lord, thank you for that second chance. Thank you for your mercy. We're not worthy of it, Lord God. Give it to someone here today, Lord. Bless us with it. Remind us of this message as we take it to the streets. We pray in Jesus' name and we said, amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on our ministry, please visit our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's ChristComChurch,